Amen. Thank you so much, Russ. It's great to see you here tonight again. If you're a visitor, if you're a guest tonight, or if you are regular, it's lovely that we can gather together and, and press into the things of the Lord. We're going to do that by reading from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, and we'll be reading uh, from verse uh, 6 through to 13. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God, was re- but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows their thoughts, re- knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Well, tonight, I'd love you to keep that passage open. We're going to be thinking about fighting valiantly against the world. Uh, And this passage in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through to 13, is there to help us to understand what it is to fight uh, against the world. And it's a very ambiguous phrase, fighting against the world. Uh, it, it, it doesn't bode well if your child goes into the playground and says, Daddy, today I'm going to fight against the world. Um, you know, we're looking very specifically about what the world really means. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that the world is wisdom. And the world of wisdom is divided into two different sorts of wisdom, the wisdom of the kingdom and the wisdom of the world. And effectively, wisdom is the core of what we need in order to fight valiantly uh, for Christ. It's very difficult to write a good talk about wisdom that either doesn't make you look like an arrogant fool who thinks that they know everything or a stupid fool who knows nothing. Uh, you're kind of always kind of balancing this talk about, you know, am I overstating the case here? But I want to kind of lean heavily on what the Scripture says, because the wisdom we need is the wisdom that is in here. It's really interesting when I, when I suggest the word wisdom, how people respond this morning. We had a lot of fun with the kids with sort of balloons and, and chocolates, Kinder Surprises. I'm sorry, I sort of titillate you in the evening with this option of chocolate, which I sadly haven't provided. But, but we were talking about what wisdom isn't. And so often in our society, we have this idea that wisdom, for example, is intelligence. If you're really intelligent, you must be wise. But it's remarkable how many incredibly intelligent people are unbelievably stupid. It's also true that intelligence or wisdom is not about knowledge gathering. So, you know, we can all go to Google and pretty much find out anything. It doesn't mean that Google is wise. And if we can regurgitate Google, it doesn't make us wise either. Actually, intelligence and knowledge don't make us wise. Popularity also doesn't make us wise. It's surely the most popular person. They must, you know, they must be really wise. That must be why people really like them. But again, sometimes the most foolish people that we really love, not necessarily the most wise. Who do you go to to ask for advice? 
Do you go to the person who knows it all? It's kind of annoying, isn't it, when you go to the know-it-all person? What do, I'm in this really complicated situation. What do you think? Oh, I know exactly what you should do. You're like, really? Is it that simple? How does it feel? Where, where do you go when you want wisdom? And what marks out a wise person in your experience? It's quite difficult to frame, isn't it? It's quite kind of ambiguous. But, but wisdom is this unique commodity, this unique sort of nature. Now, you could say that wisdom is a noun. It's a kind of thing, get wisdom. Uh, but also, wisdom is this verb, do, do wisdom, frame things well, think things through well. And I think you know, wisdom's best understood as a bit of a mix of both. What I can tell you is that, is that wisdom is at the very core of the Bible, and the, the most wise people in the Scriptures are looking for and hungering after wisdom as the greatest tool in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, that the cross is a message of foolishness for those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved is the power of God. Now, wisdom in Scripture, not some sort of universally recognized commodity. Not everyone will see everything we believe as being wise. That's why we have to be really discerning in getting wisdom in order that we can, uh, if you like, make the right steps in the battle that we find ourselves in. What's interesting to me is the value of wisdom in Scripture, one of the most desirable qualities to nurture. Solomon recounts in Proverbs 4-7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Genius, isn't it? You know, it's like, wow, okay. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. It's like, you can imagine Solomon thinking, I need to, I need to think something really profound today on the sort of Twitter in the sort of, you know, 2000 BCs. What shall I tweet today, guys, on my stone tablet? I know something about wisdom. Who, who's got something to share? Right, wisdom, get it. That's what you need. You know, this is what you need. It says, he goes on to say, though it cost you all you have, and he had a lot, get understanding. You know, you can have the most powerful weapons of war, the biggest armies in history, but if you haven't got wisdom, you'll never win. Solomon's military advice in Proverbs 24, 5, and 6 is, a wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you'll wage war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. You know, there's this idea that actually, if you want to do anything significant in life, you want to win a notable battle, it's dependent on the acquisition of wisdom. Now, Solomon buys in wisdom. He, he kind of, he seeks advice, but it's not just him buying in wisdom and then regurgitating that wisdom. It's him kind of just active in this process of reflection and estimation, evaluation that leads him to develop this ability to, to, to really filter information for the sake of the kingdom. Well, we know we need it, uh, but how do we get it? To understand this better, we need to think about what true wisdom isn't. And Paul writes in verse 6, that the wisdom and the rulers of this age come to nothing. We are all in the sweet shop of life, attracted to those things that appear to be wise, yet very often aren't wise. It's amazing how we can fool ourselves into believing that we're really receiving wisdom when we're really just satisfying our sinful nature. Oh, that looks like a really good idea. Have you ever thought that to yourself? Oh, that's a really great idea. I mean, someone really smart would do that. 
And, you know, we step into it by convincing ourselves often that this decision is a good decision. I, I've nearly died a few times, I've got to be honest. Um, you know, typical kind of uh, male bravado, if I can be uh, genderist about it. And one of the worst instances of me nearly dying was when um, I was in my family home in South Devon, and there is a, a, a river mouth between the small village that my parents are in and the main town where there is a very good surf break, and I like surfing. And now, anyone who's wise would note the very powerful tidal currents that run through this river called the River Teen, actually that flows at similar speed to the River Thames, around 13 to 14 knots. Now, you can look at the river on a really sunny day, particularly at low tide, it doesn't look that far, maybe, you know, quarter of a mile or something, you know, not particularly, you know, challenging, you'd think. And you could look at the large trawlers that are attached to big metal wires onto large marine buoys that drag against the tide. You know, and you, you might think they look like a bit like a cheese wire that might slice through you if you're sliding past in the wrong angle. And, and one day, on the beach on the village side, I was thinking, you know, I really want to go surfing today, and I can see the waves are good. I'm going to save some money because that's wise. And so I'm not going to get the ferry across. What I'm going to do is I'm going to paddle across on my surfboard. So, you know, failing to estimate the speed of the tide, I dove in and paddled off thinking, I probably look quite good right now from the beach. This is wise. I'm building up my reputation locally as an excellent surfer. No doubt there were people on the beach thinking this is foolishness. And as I paddled across, got about three quarters of the way across my arms, started feeling a little bit tired. I was thinking, I seem to be drifting quite fast in the current. And then I saw said large trawlers attached to the same buoy. And remarkably, I slipped between said trawlers, which were about 60 feet long. And then the water went down, because that's what water does. And so I got sucked down and started to drown, which was not wise. And I managed to hold on to a very small metal ring at the water side, which I was very grateful for, that was sort of a boy attachment on one of these trawlers. And I, I sort of water skied on my body whilst my surfboard tried to rip me under the water for a 60-meter journey or 60-foot journey amongst the barnacles and no doubt to my, to my demise and started to scream, help, I've been foolish. <laughs> Fortunately, a couple of fishermen on the beach had noticed me disappear from said trawlers. No doubt they were kind of thinking, who is this idiot on a surfboard? And they came out and they rescued me just in the nick of time. And um, I was in pretty bad shape. And I remember uh, being sort of deposited on the beach, lacerated from barnacles, uh, and very, very bruised, and, and sort of coughing up a little bit of seawater. And then the harbour master appeared to tell me very publicly and very loudly just what an absolute fool I was. It, it's amazing, isn't it, how we can convince ourselves. Here's someone who thinks he's maybe mildly intelligent, someone who thinks he can make great decisions, someone who thinks this is, you know, normally does sensible things, who does something deeply foolish. We can convince ourselves that we're getting wisdom when we're actually exercising our stupidity. What we need to know is that this sort of self-giving wisdom is no wisdom at all. And it's, it's the currency of our climate, and it was the currency of Paul's climate too. Corinth, which he's speaking to in this passage, was known to love wisdom. The word they used in the Greek is Sophia. And Sophia was not just, obviously, any, any Sophies in the room tonight? Any Sophies? 
Yes, one or two, welcome. Wisdom personified, that's what it means. Um, so Sophia, Sophie was this kind of uh, articulation of wisdom and they loved it in Corinth. They would always have these grand debates. We have kind of YouTube, they had debating in the public square. Everyone sort of showing off their wisdom. The commentator Barclay reflects, Corinth put a premium on the veneer of false rhetoric and thin thinking. Everyone out there having these kind of great debates or, or on the street corners, uh, shouting uh, about what they knew or didn't know. Uh, it wasn't sort of primitive thinking. Paul's going up against these sophists, and they included Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and Cicero. So kind of heavyweights in the wisdom world, people who continue to inform our thinking today. Paul, though, isn't convinced, and neither should you. He identifies their wisdom as, an, as the sort of noun in chapter 2, verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. And he separates out man's power from God's power in verse 5. He's saying, you know, you've come with sort of articulations with wise words. They're a thing, but the sort of wisdom I want you to have is not wise or persuasive words. It's actually something far more organic, something far more verb-like, something that's kind of alive within you. Man's wisdom and God's power are juxtaposed in this way. And, and, and just think about it for a minute. If you had the opportunity to ask anyone, including God, who would you ask? You know, I would kind of ask God. God, you know, what do you want to say to me on this issue? I need wisdom. I'll go to the source of wisdom. The wisdom of the age, which Paul is dealing with here, has very similar rules to the wisdom of the age that we're living in. And if you want to win a victory, you need to learn what the rules are that people are playing by. You know, we, we, we're in a great season of sport. I still don't really understand the offside rule in football, I've got to be honest. Maybe I'll educate myself, maybe not. Uh, rugby is very complicated, but I seem to understand the rules of that particular game pretty well, especially when we're winning. And, um, you know, yeah, all, of these, all of these rules that are, are, you know, sort of played out on the sports field are all there to enable you to understand how can I win. Now, we are blinded by this veneer-like wisdom that we're living in because we're so entrenched in it, we lose sight of the fact that there are other sorts of rules being played out. And I would suggest five rules in the wisdom of the world. The first one is, wisdom is held by a majority consensus. If most people think it, it must be true. So one of the key battlegrounds that we face today is, oh, well, everyone thinks this. And so if everyone thinks it, then surely uh, we should think it too. Remember, when Jesus was crucified, there were sort of eight people, just about, who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. That's quite a significant minority. Those eight people have converted most of the known world, and now there are billions of people who profess that Jesus Christ is Lord today. And the majority of the world believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, let's acknowledge we don't necessarily feel like that in the UK today. Oh, no one believes that anymore, do they? Well, that's not important. <laughs> what's important is, is it wisdom? So the, num the first rule, wisdom is held by majority consensus. Rule number two in our world is wisdom is populist. That means if you've got wisdom, then people will celebrate you and it will kind of promote your brand. So wise people are people that people like more when they share what they know. 
foolish people are people who get cancelled and people don't like. They're obviously not wise. Because if they were wise, they'd become more popular, not less popular. So that's kind of rule number two. Ultimately, your wisdom demonstrates your popularity. Rule number three is people who purport to have a different wisdom to your own should be denigrated, humiliated, cancelled, marginalised, discredited, and, 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 and vilified. So it's quite interesting. You know, we, 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 wisdom is held by a majority consensus, but if someone disagrees, and clearly they're stupid. So that, that's, that's, that's kind of as is, rule number four. And... Um, sorry, rule number three. Rule number four is religious wisdom is primitive, and whilst it can be tolerated within its own community, it cannot be acknowledged to have any universal value. If you remember, um, uh, as Alistair Campbell said, we don't do God. <laughs> you know, it, it's religion, this is rubbish. Okay, we don't do that. We're happy to extrapolate the wisdom of Christianity, repackage it in a secular way, and then say it's just common wisdom, but we're not, we're not happy about acknowledging that it has any kind of tendrils in, in, in faith. Uh, so we'll, we'll edit that bit. So that's rule number four. And the rule number five is anyone who claims to have wisdom beyond the consensus has discredited themselves and proved that they don't have any wisdom because Socrates set the rules of these particular wisdom rules out and he said the only true wisdom is knowing that you have no wisdom at all. So you kind of, Socrates set up a kind of foolproof scheme to discredit anyone who believed that they had any wisdom by saying that to say you have any wisdom is to acknowledge that you haven't got any wisdom. So that was kind of like the plug that he gets to pull every time anyone says that they know anything which falls outside rules uh, one to four. Now, you might have noticed that these rules play out every day in our world in different ways. Certainly, if you spend any time on social media, you can pretty much label every discussion in post one to five, how it works out. One thing I really like about Paul's analysis is that he gets the sort of dispersonalization of wisdom. It becomes the wisdom of the age. When, when people with the wisdom of the age are defending their views, the authors simply hide behind a group and claim, well, it's just what everyone thinks. If you notice that, the wisdom of the age. It's never personalized. It's never, it's never Jordan B. Peterson says, well, sometimes it is, but you know what I mean. It's not normally X person says. Uh, you know, it, it, it could be anyone. But it's very rarely a consensus. Oh, so-and-so thinks. It's just, it's the wisdom of the age. It's what we all think. So, as long as you're purporting the wisdom of the age, it just automatically has crowd effect. We all think this, do we? And because it's generalized, we feel stupid if we stand and say, well, actually, I, I don't believe that all roads lead up the same mountain. I think, yeah, the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's so exclusive. I mean, no one believes that group effect. So you immediately think, oh, but, oh, you've been specific. Oh, you've claimed unique wisdom. Demonstrates your stupidity, according to Socrates. So that's, that's no good at all. You have to find something that's more general and inclusive, and then you'll be more popular. Oh, sorry, have I lost my popularity? Yes, you just said something exclusive. That's not acceptable. Oh, okay, let me generalize it. Everyone's going to heaven. Oh, great, well done. You get it, you're in. So what happens with wisdom of the age is it's generalized. However, when the generalized wisdom of the age is attacking someone else's view, it becomes inherently personal. It becomes, you are a hypocrite, personally. 
I'm going to drag in any inconsistency in your life, any, tenden, uh, any tenacious or any, any tenuous family or circumstantial association to be able to claim hypocrisy. So we talk about the wisdom of the aging. Oh, you know, everyone thinks this. Oh, but you, Tim, I've, I just want to say, you know, I've just noticed. And also that tweet that you wrote 30 years ago before Twitter was even alive. <laughs> there is a deep fake, but I'm not going to mention that. <laughs> you know, and, and this thing, you know, and you, Russ, you know, I saw you in the car park beeping at someone, like in an angry way. You call yourself a Christian. You, know, you Jen Symes, you know, I'm sure you've done something wrong, and I'm, I can't think of it, but I'm going to say it anyway. So, you know, one of the rules of, 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 the, of the battle we find ourselves in is that this generalized wisdom of the age is totally faceless and nameless. You can't challenge it, but boy, will it challenge you. It comes back to you with a different set of rules. Interestingly, uh, hypocrisy comes from the first century too. The hypocrites were in fact actors who wore a mask on stage. There were hypocrites had a, a kind of clay mask, often with a smile or a sad face, and it literally translates an interpreter from underneath. Like the way in which we discredit Christian wisdom is by calling Christians hypocrites. And to be fair, today on Safeguarding Sunday, some Christians have brilliantly demonstrated how big a hypocrites they are. You know, that's a fact. But that does not mean that every Christian is a hypocrite. But certainly the wisdom of the age will say, well, clearly you all are. And therefore we can discredit this message. That's why holy living matters. Because if we are living holy lives that are pleasing to God, we're demonstrating with more power the authenticity of the gospel that we believe, and therefore the wisdom of God which surpasses the wisdom of the world. It's another reason that we chase after holiness in all things. But recognize how personal we find ourselves in this sort of destructive battle. The battle isn't fair. You might wonder what the remedy is. Well, in verse 7, Paul goes on to talk about God's secret wisdom. The word secret is actually mysterio, which is perhaps a little bit more helpful than secret. I don't really like the word secret. It, it's just a mystery. It's, it's, it's hard to kind of fathom. But it's a revelation of God's power in verse 5. The mystery of God is a revelation of God's power, which is that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Ultimately, all Christian wisdom comes down to this, that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Interesting, this phrase, the Lord of glory, it's the most emphatic statement that Paul uses in the whole of Scripture about who Jesus is. And as a, as a rabbinic scholar, he leaves the New Testament audience in absolutely no doubt that he believes with his entire heart that Jesus is God. The Lord of glory is like the ultimate statement of, of, the, of the lordship, of the divinity of Jesus. And he's saying this is the mystery, this is the secret wisdom which is revealed to you through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Now, God's wisdom is inhabiting the earth from creation. So it's not like God's wisdom suddenly started when Jesus' ministry began. God's wisdom has been inhabiting the earth ever since God created the world because God is wisdom. 
But Jesus is the personification of the wisdom of God because Jesus is a revelation of the Lord of glory. And when you have a revelation of the Lord of glory, the wisdom of God inhabits your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then you receive a noun and a verb of wisdom because you become an incarnate part of the wisdom of God. Christ dwells within you, the hope of glory, and because Christ dwells within you, the hope of glory, that glory begins to seep through your bones. That wisdom begins to seep out of your heart and hopefully out of your mouth and your hands. So what we experience here is something that is ontological. It kind of, it begins with us receiving the wisdom of Christ and it ends with us exercising the wisdom of Christ in the ministry of God in the world around us. And that's really powerful because it's not this smoke and mirrors exercise which was going on in the first century. It's not a battle of rhetoric, of fine words, and of, of heady arguments. It's about enacting God's wisdom, which is always preferment of the poor. It's always about the service of those who are marginalized. It's always about the building the kingdom. It's always about proclaiming the glory of God and the redemption of the people through Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. All of this work is the wisdom of God outworked through your life. But it's not wisdom that the world particularly likes. Why? Because ultimately, the wisdom of the world is self-serving, but the wisdom of the kingdom is God-serving. And ultimately, if you, if you play the wisdom card, very often it becomes self-serving. It's quite narcissistic. The wisdom of the world is, I want to swim across this river to go surfing. You know, ultimately, wisdom often is that longer word with I in the middle. It's like, how can I surf myself in a way that looks you know, intelligent, you know, sensible, compassionate even. This wisdom is wisdom that breaks the conventional rules of wisdom. Number one, it's not held by the majority. Certainly not in this country. Number two, it's not populist because we offer God power in our life. You know, you are the Lord of glory, not me. I'm ultimately ceding the power of my life over to your life. No, rule number three, Christians are discredited and called hypocrites by those defending the wisdom of the age which discredits the wisdom they present. Rule number four, religious wisdom is deemed primitive, even though Plato was born well before Jesus. Rule number five, claiming divine wisdom is to suggest that there is a finite source of wisdom which discredits the rules that says true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. So you can see why Christian wisdom struggling if you're like apparently struggling against the wisdom of this age. But you can also see why the wisdom that Christ is Lord is a wisdom far greater than any wisdom that's offered you in the world today. It's a far greater wisdom. Jesus, the good news of his nature is something altogether different. It is true wisdom. In verse 12, Paul says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So much of the wisdom of our age is self-revelation. It's, it's the filter of knowledge that is self-serving through the self. I receive knowledge. I filter it through my ability to be wise. And then I'll regurgitate it at a dinner party and try and impress people. And then I'll go back to just being the normal bod who I actually am self-serving wisdom but this Christian wisdom is orientated from God it filters through my heart not my head 
and then it should return to God as an act of worship. I receive the wisdom of God. I, I receive it into my body as we've done with communion tonight. And then I outwork it through my life as an act of worship back to God again. This is cyclical wisdom, but not around myself. It's cyclical wisdom between me and God. I'm in communion with God. So God and me working together share this cycle of wisdom. His wisdom worked out through my life. But this circle is also not a single circle. It's two circles because it's the wisdom of God worked out through my life through the church and back to me. So these two spinning wheels operate through God to one another and back to him in worship. We're called to exercise the verb of wisdom in a very distinct way. James says uh, in James 3.17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, first of all, is pure, then peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. The wisdom of the kingdom produces actual fruit, and it looks in a particular way. We can measure in our lives the wisdom of God outworked through the way in which we enact our wisdom. Paul was having arguments on the street with men who were trying to destroy his character. He was wanting to see a church moving away from arguments on the street about destroying character into a church that was loving the poor, restoring the brokenhearted, enabling the lives of those who'd suffered from abuse, wanting to see the kingdom of God built here on earth as it is in heaven. He wanted to demonstrate real fruit. You see, fighting valiantly against the world, the flesh, and the devil is not going to end well if we're using the weapons of the, of, of the war that belong to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've not been called to argue on street corners with thin rhetoric. We've got to stop saying things like, oh, the rules aren't fair. Oh, it's not very nice being a Christian today because these rules of wisdom, they don't really work with how I like things to be. If you're playing chess against the devil, expect him to cheat. Best off, don't play chess against the devil. Just go and do something else instead. Something that looks like the fruit of the Spirit of God. All these things, enacting the wisdom of God in the world around us in life. Now, we don't subscribe to a gospel of grace because we want to be populist and carry this consensus. I don't know about you, but I'm just a sinful man who needs a loving saviour. That's my simple story. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I'm a broken person. I need God's grace. I didn't come in this to, I didn't come to faith to go, I want to be a preacher. Just came to Jesus and said, Lord, forgive me. I'm a real mess. I need you to heal my heart. Forgive me for all the things I've done wrong and really show me what life looks like. Now, if I can drag a few people to heaven with me, you know, I'm delighted. But my life in faith is not dependent on it. Just need to be faithful. I don't need to agree with me, what I say, what I want to happen, for it to be true. You know, the wisdom of God surpasses the wisdom of man. It's okay. Don't like what I have to say? That's all right. I'm not here because you should like it. I'm just here because I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Like the wisdom of the kingdom of God really falls beyond any of the rules that the world has established. And we need to fight valiantly, knowing why the wisdom we carry is so distinct, so holy, so good, and so life-giving. And when we know that, 
we can stop getting called out fighting battles that we really don't need to fight. Why don't we stand uh, for a moment together?